0: There was nothing here that indicated to me that this would be a short, sharp kind of campaign. But, you know, the end game of this and the last campaign is Crimea, Uh, but you've got to do a lot of things before that becomes possible, including taking back Kherson and Zafarizia or Blasts. Pretty much everything we've seen in it, we've seen in every previous war, whether it's the presence of strategy, the importance of leadership, artillery, combined arms, air operations, um, you know, support from the population, influence operation. None of these things are new.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI and I'm joined on this episode by retired Australian Army Major General Mick Ryan. For years, he has been a really influential voice among those who study war and its future. His combination of that deep study and his decades of practical military and leadership experience make his perspective really valuable. And when Russia invaded Ukraine last February, that perspective quickly made him one of the keenest and most insightful observers of the way that war was playing out. Now, one year on from the invasion, he joins me to reflect back on the past year of war and to describe what we should be learning about the modern battlefield from that conflict. He also looks forward to examine what we might expect from the war in the months ahead. I'm grateful to General Ryan for a really fascinating discussion that I hope you enjoy listening to. Before we get to it though, as always, just a couple quick notes. First, if you're not yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app. We're working on some really interesting new episodes that you won't want to miss. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right. Here's my conversation with Major General Mick Ryan. General Ryan, sir, thanks so much for making time in in uh, in what I know is an extraordinarily busy schedule to uh, to speak with me.
0: Yeah, no worries. Great to uh, be with you, John, and back at the uh, Modern War Institute.
1: Yeah, we've been grateful for your uh, the contributions that you've made, your participation with a bunch of the things that we've done uh, at MWI really since uh, since we launched. But when I, as I mentioned, kind of when I reached out to you and asked if you had time in your schedule to uh, sit down and speak with me, this week marks uh, one year since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. I think everybody will be aware of that, and I kind of want to take that opportunity to do uh, to do two things. One is to make kind of a retrospective survey of the past year of war, and two you know sort of look ahead at 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 what might come next um you know i don't think there are very many people who have watched the course of the war and analyzed it as comprehensively as you have uh, in fact if there are any listeners who are not among uh, among your many many thousands of twitter followers i'd highly encourage them to follow you i personally found you know the insights that you've shared to be a, you know an immensely valuable resource uh i noticed you know very shortly after the invasion you began putting together your analysis in in Twitter threads, which is a really interesting medium for it, a really useful medium for that kind of thing. I think, if we think back to that time, those opening hours and days of the war, a lot of people, even you know, some really well informed, smart people, experts on Russia, experts on Ukraine, a lot of these people expected the general military superiority that Russia held vis-a-vis Ukraine to uh, to tip the balance, uh, and maybe pretty quickly. Do you recall your kind of initial thoughts as you watched Ukraine mount what, what really turned out to be a pretty effective defense? Yeah,
0: I remember thinking uh, that big war is back, that um, the decline of violence and the kind of uh, war theories, which I took on in my book, was weren't right. I mean, there were still people out there who were willing to expend enormous national resources uh, through war to get what they want. Um, so, you know that was I guess my initial feeling. Um, but, you know, I also started looking at, well, what were we thinking before? What are we thinking now? Um, this are these are two large countries., uh, this isn't going to be over quickly. And you know I very quickly came to the view that this was this was not going to be a short campaign. this was going to be, a long and brutal campaign, whether it was conventional, whether it was um, uh, a counterinsurgency, if the Russians are able to take more of Ukraine. But there was nothing here that indicated to me that this would be a short, sharp kind of campaign. And uh, I think that's how it's really paid out. And you've got to look at war differently uh, when it comes to that Kind of long war out. You really have to think about it differently. Your strategies differently. Your commitment of resources is, is different from the belligerents and those who are supporting them. So, you know, um, you know, they were kind of my initial thoughts. And you know, I'm doing a bit of writing this week on the first year anniversary and going back to that first tweet I put out on the morning in the in the morning. And you know, I I wouldn't say I got everything right, but um, I I feel that. A lot of the things I wrote them uh, have kind of uh, played out um, since that time, and it's been really interesting to to watch things that have surprised me, things that haven't surprised me over the course of the last year.
1: You know the 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 sort of stiff resistance uh, that we saw on the part of Ukraine uh, initially. I think that the there's sort of an impulse among those of us who were watching to sort of you know chalk it up to this extraordinarily extraordinary level of of commitment uh, on the part of Ukrainians Ukrainian people and 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 this remarkable collective will on the part of both the people the population and the military forces how influential do you feel that those sort of intangible factors were especially in those opening few weeks
0: um, i think The real intangible in those first few weeks was um, no one really knew Ukraine well. I I think that was probably one of the biggest issues in people's uh, misjudgment about this war because I think there was a lot of Russia experts out there, but I don't think there are a lot of people who really understood um, Ukraine, its capabilities, their reference point was Ukraine 2014, which I think was part of, you know, certainly part of Russia's um, issue with this war as well, that they hadn't moved on. And I think that was the same for a lot of people in the analytical and in the national security communities that, um, you know, uh, I really think we misjudged and didn't understand the Ukraine. So for me, that was the biggest intangible. Um, but... You know, that said, uh, this has demonstrated once again just how important good leadership is. I mean, it's hard to overstate the profound importance of leadership in war. Um, this is not a new lesson. Uh, this is something, uh, it's, you know, it's why places like Modern War Institute exist, you know, to build better leaders. Uh, the military's known this for a long time. I think a lot of others might have forgotten it. Uh, But whether it's the political and inspirational leadership of Zelensky, uh, whether it was the will of the Ukrainian people, whether it was combat leadership, whether it was good young leaders on the battlefield making quick calls and taking the initiative, you know, that's one of these intangibles that you just can't measure and you don't know how it's going to work out uh, until you actually see things happening on the battlefield. Um, So... You know, it's a big intangible, um, but, you know, leadership and understanding Ukraine were the two big unknowns, I think, going into this.
1: You know, it's one of the things that I, I've had the good fortune to uh, to spend a fair amount of time in Ukraine from about 20, I think 2016 was my first trip uh, up until the fall of 2021 uh, about five months before the invasion and one of the things that struck me is that on one of my first trips there we were told by a very senior army officer that ukraine ukraine's military was more soviet than the russians because they hadn't had these opportunities to sort of identify the problems with uh, some of these characteristics and then fix them the way that russia did with well two wars in in uh, in chechnya and then georgia and then syria um, and so Russian forces had adapt they'd been on this almost decade long process of modernization, something that you know at least back in you know in 2015 it was certainly a problem 2014 2015 was certainly a problem in the Ukrainian armed forces but these things like a professionalized NCO corps um, and empowered junior leadership and things like that like disciplined disobedience, this idea that 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 junior leaders' perspective, that awareness of local conditions, might be important enough to modify, say, orders that come from above. We have seen, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have seen, you know, a pretty extraordinary extraordinary level of tactical proficiency on this part of small units doing some pretty innovative and. Um, you know doing some pretty innovative things and operating with tactical flexibility. is that something that that you have uh, that you have seen and that has surprised you? Oh, there's,
0: there's absolutely no doubt that's happened, but it's not uh, founded on rank. Uh, it's founded on experience. It's founded on um, lots of people coming back in the military who had experience from 2014 onwards in the Dombes. But I, I think actually, We've kind of over-focused on the NCO Corps. I, I I just don't see this uh, in the Ukrainian army like we have it in the mm-hmm. West. I just don't have that culture. They have a culture of seniority among soldiers. Um, you know, there's a very bottom-up kind of culture in the Ukrainian military and Ukraine more broadly, whereas the Russians are a far more top-down, centralised control uh, institution culturally. You know, that is just their... Uh, institutional stance, for want of a better term. And I think it's a significant asymmetry that the Ukrainians have been able to uh, learn and adapt as individuals and as an institution better than the Russians have. Now, it doesn't mean either side are perfect or or perfectly awful, but I think it's a significant uh, asymmetry in this war that the Ukrainians have been able to learn more broadly uh, and more quickly than the Russians have.
1: Yeah, you know, there. Is, I, I worry sometimes that we do fall into this narrative trap of simplifying what we've seen and said. That the, the Ukraine has outperformed expectations, so must be doing really, really well. And Russia has underperformed expectations, so must be doing really, really poorly. And I think that there's, you know, there's a bunch of nuance that gets missed in that, in that, um, in that sort of narrative. And so I want to kind of stick with tactics because, well, so first of all, one of the things that I've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts. Uh, one of the reasons I've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts throughout the war is because you know a comparative analysis of tactical proficiency is important understanding the the strategic framework within which both sides are prosecuting the war is important and having a sense of how well either side is kind of connecting strategy to tactics uh, through operational art is really important. these are the three you know the three levels of war tactical, operational and strategic and it's something that because of your background you're you're very well suited to sort of synthesize what we're seeing at all three of those levels. Oh. If we could, though, kind of take them in turn and stick with tactics first, how would you assess just generally the tactical proficiency that you've seen from both Russian forces and Ukrainian forces?
0: Well, I think looking at the Russians, I mean, their tactical proficiency in the north uh, was awful. I mean, that was clearly an F they lost. Um, and, you know, the, uh, the clear muddle that they found themselves in meant that they went into this not expecting to fight. And when they did have to fight, they, they weren't arrayed in the kinds of combined arms formations that were necessary to win those fights. I mean, they clearly had the numbers. They just didn't have the organisation. They didn't have the will. Uh, in the east, they were a bit better. Uh, they were obviously able to take Luhansk, uh, a little bit more of Donetsk. Um, they probably get a, a C. and in the south, you know, they're able to move pretty quickly, uh, both through uh, tactical operations, but subterfuge, buying people off, a few things like this. So you know, they've probably got to be they, they're probably the most successful of the Russian combat uh, operations in this war. Uh, that's on the ground, of course, and the air the air force has uh, been okay. You know, it did uh, conduct a lot of strikes in the first forty eight hours of this war. Uh, but it conducted a lot of strikes on former positions of Ukrainian armed forces, not current positions. So their targeting cycle wasn't rapid enough. Now, they haven't really run a large air campaign ever. They just have never had to. It's not like the United States, which ran major air campaigns in Vietnam and then the first Gulf War and then Afghanistan, then the second Gulf War. And, you know, let's not forget the, um, you know, the campaign over, over Iraq after the 1991 war. So, you know, in the United States, you've got an institution that's hugely experienced and has learned from each war of, you know, very complex air campaigns that suppress and destroy enemy air defence networks, that suppress and destroy enemy command and control frameworks and logistics. Uh, And the Russians weren't able to do this. So, you know, both ground and air, uh, they've shown themselves to a military that's not structured for large scale wars, which actually wasn't the aim of their 2012-2022 reforms. Uh, But even though they weren't structured for it, they haven't adapted well into it. You know, they're still trying to fight the war they want to fight rather than the war that's in front of them. But the Ukrainians, uh, you know, once again, the Ukrainians are fighting the war they have to fight. Um, And, you know, they have, once again, learned and adaptive during the war. They've changed their command and control. Um, You know, they've continued their training systems in what seems to be a very competent manner, both in Ukraine and Western systems. I mean, that factory for more soldiers is really important. Um, And, you know, I hope to learn just how much uh, combat lessons have informed um, the uh, production of those soldiers over the course of war, how it's changed it, how it's improved it, hopefully. Um, So you know, there's a real asymmetry there. You know, the Russians are fighting the war they want to fight. The Ukrainians are fighting the war that's in front of them.
1: What about if we kind of zoom to the other end of the spectrum and look at strategy? And I think specifically with respect to Russia, this is a really interesting question because, I mean, personally, if you ask me, you know, I'm—I don't think I think Russia entered this war with some idea of its strategic objectives. But I think that they've been very fluid since then, uh, and I'm still not entirely sure if I if I know what what those strategic objectives are. What do you what do you sort of make of that?
0: Um, I think its political objectives have remained static for the entirety of this war, and you know the political objective of Putin is subjugate Ukraine. I mean that that has not changed at all. Um, he might dress it up in different ways, but that is and remains his strategic objective. And every speech, that's essentially the message he gives. Now, the strategy for achieving that has evolved constantly throughout this war. So they have demonstrated strategic adaptation and learning there. Um, you know, the strategy originally uh, for this uh, was based on, I think, three assumptions, all of which have been proved wrong. You know, the first one was that. The Ukrainian military uh, wouldn't fight. The second one was that the West wouldn't uh, wouldn't help. And the third one uh, was that the Ukrainian government people would acquiesce reasonably quickly to Russia's uh, demands once the Russian military crossed the borders. Now, none of them have worked out. Uh, and within about 48 hours, the Russian campaign, which is designed to be about 10 days, uh, by necessity, had to morph into something else. It had to morph into combat operations. Uh, but also, you know, after about a month the, with the defeat in the North, they had to really look at the unity of their campaign, the unity of military force, and concentrate a lot of their combat power in one area, um, and that, that was the East. You know, at the same time, they've adapted their information operations. Uh, they've got better at it. Um, They had to adapt their logistics. They've had to adapt their command and control. They frequently changed our commanders. Um, So, you know, I I think their political objective has remained the same, but their strategy for achieving it has continued to evolve uh, throughout this war.
1: And the strategy for achieving it, you know, we're starting to kind of then dance into this area of 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 campaign design and operational art, right? Right, which is this sort of connective tissue between strategy and tactics that uses the former to to inform and 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 kind of determine uh, the latter. You know, there are times in in the past year when I've looked at it and I've struggled to really trace the contours of any sort of operational campaign plan on the part of Russia because I think in part they have had to. They've run into so many walls and had to adjust and so it's difficult to kind of understand how operational art is taking place on the russian side or if it is taking place on the ukrainian side i think it's a little bit more understandable because you said ukraine is essentially fighting the war that they have to fight and so you know maybe a campaign plan kind of features less prominently in that sort of defensive um defensive approach to a response to an invasion but have you have you seen any signs of that that you know that either side, you know, it, it maybe appreciates the same way that Western militaries do the importance of operational art?
0: Oh, I think you know both sides uh, appreciate it because uh, both have it in their DNA. I mean, the operational art wasn't something the West invented. You know, it was something mm-hmm. the Russians really came up with in the interwar period, and the Ukrainians certainly retain. DNA from both Soviet and Russian military systems. So I, you know, I think they both understand the importance of that operational art of uh, building campaigns that um, undertake tactical operations to meet strategic and, and political objectives. Once again, I just think the Ukrainians have probably been better at it than the Russians have. I mean, the Russians made some terrible assumptions uh based on poor intelligence that informed their campaign plan. I mean, their campaign plan, you know, had four different um, armoured thrusts on the ground uh, from north, northeast, east and south at the beginning of the war, each supported by its own mini air force rather than a unified air campaign, um, which was based on the Ukrainians probably wouldn't fight and this will be over in 10 days and you won't see support from the west. So their campaign planning was flawed from the start. Um, you know, clearly joined political objectives with tactical um, fighting, but the way it did it was bad because the assumptions it was based on was bad. The Ukrainians, on the other hand, have had great clarity. You know, it's, it's easy to have clarity when someone's trying to exterminate you and your nation. Um, so that forces uh, a rapidity of action, uh, a clarity on what actually matters, what's really important. Um, you know, they don't have too many distractions, the Ukrainian military. They have one job. They know what it is. And that, you know, allows them to do the kind of campaign planning that we would see that, you know, people like me have done on school events, war fighting or, or done in places like Iraq. And I think, that once again, they've done it pretty well. And if you have a look at some of the features of, you know, the operational art um, you know, it's that focus on meeting strategic objectives. It's about prioritization. It's about creation of reserves. It's about the integration of air, land, sea uh, activities. About the integration of kinetic and non-kinetic. Um, it's about planning current and subsequent battles and, and campaigns. And I think we've seen that in pretty good measure from the Ukrainians. You know, whilst they were fighting in the south, they were preparing for Kharkiv. While they, whilst they were conducting Kharkiv, they were planning for on While they've been doing that, I guarantee they've been planning for both winter and spring offensives. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot we don't see. They, that, that's always the case, especially when a war is ongoing. But boy, I think there's going to be a treasure trove for those who study the operational level of war in particular at the conclusion of this war, because I think it's it's an approach that time has kind of recome, and I think it's an approach that has uh, being used by both sides of this war, and it's something that's worthy of of more study.
1: You know, after a, um, a a you know an opening phase of the war, that was, you know, everybody's kind of trying to make sense of and figure out. You know, we're all looking at these Institute for the Study of War maps um, to see, you know, kind of how things are changing on a daily basis. And then we really had in 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 the fall, you mentioned. Um the offenses to recapture Kharkiv and Kherson, you know it was it was a very sort of a war of movement in a lot of ways, now into the winter, um, for some reasons, maybe unexpectedly it has become. Uh, or expectedly it has become more static than it's been kind of at any point since the invasion did that surprise you or 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 would you have sort of said hey look you know the the realities of of winter in this part of europe mean that there's probably not going to be a whole lot of combined arms maneuver taking place and and lines shifting as as rapidly or as quickly as they were um you know throughout the fall
0: yeah it it was entirely unsurprising i mean if you have a look at any past war, there there are a mix of pulses and pauses. Right, um, you see pulses of combat actions uh, and strategic strikes, as we've seen in this war. But um, wars are fought by humans, and humans get tired, and um, not just individuals, but organisations get tired. Uh, they exhaust themselves after months of uh, combat, as well as you know artillery and, and long range strikes. So it's impossible for any military institution, even the very best military institution that's ever existed, which was probably the US Army, Gulf War 1991, that 100-hour campaign couldn't have been a 100-day campaign because at some point people get tired. And unless you've got an entirely second force to follow them behind it, you've got to take pauses, you've got to slow down, whether it's to reinforce, whether it's to resupply, whether it's just to take stock of the enemy's reaction so you can adjust your plans War is all about these macro pauses and pulses. And it made sense to me that, you know, we saw a pulse in the first few months of the war. We saw a bit of a pause uh, in the middle of the year, even though Donbass was quite bitter. We saw a pulse again in September, October, November with Kherson and Kharkiv. We saw a bit of a pause over winter, although I think if the West had of delivered on a lot of its supplies to Ukraine, they probably would have done something more over winter. And we're about to see another pulse. So this is just a pulse and pause kind of uh, activity that we see in every historic long war. And I think we'll continue to see it in this one. We're building up to another pulse. We're not there yet. Uh, I think, you know, you're seeing the the contours of the Russian campaign uh, fall into place. But uh, I, I expect over the next four months or so, we'll see a significant pulse of combat operations.
1: And what will that look like? You know, what are the, what do you imagine? Are the or what do you expect? Are the uh, the sort of objectives of either side as they ready these spring offensive plans that I think most people kind of anticipate.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, you know, I know. There's some people. They say will oh, be. It's a mystery what such and such is going to do, and it's like, well, actually, no, it's not. There's no mystery, <laughs> uh, because the political leaders. Now both sides have outlined their objectives. You know, Putin constantly has talked about what he wants in particular, his focus on the Donbass. So, the Russian focus is really going to be, at least tactically and operationally, in securing the Donbass. And you can see the beginnings of what they're trying to do as a, an encirclement of Bakhmut uh, as part of that. But there'll be other operations, and that will be accompanied by. Uh, longer range strikes which are designed to coerce the ukrainian people but it's not so it's more terror campaign but it does um you know support russian theories uh of you know economic warfare which is part of their doctrine and what they've been doing from day one you know do things that take away ukraine's capacity to generate revenue through gdp or manufacturing mining and agriculture so Uh, that's what Russia is going to do in the next six months, I think. Um, And Ukraine, likewise, there's no mystery. Um, The president of Ukraine at the G20 outlined his 10 points of war termination. They're out there for all to see. He's um, hewed to that message ever since the G20. He wants all of Ukraine's territory back. So once again, we know Ukraine's going to do things to take back territory. Now, It'll do things also to destroy the Russian military at the same time. And I think the more Russian military they decide, the better it is for all of us. Um, but, you know, they will be looking at the east and the south uh, to take back territory. The synchronisation is a bit of a mystery. And, I, you know, I'm not really interested in speculating. There's, there's a myriad of ways you might do that. But, you know, I think the eastern south and then Crimea is the rough kind of orchestration we have there, and some of that might be concurrent. But you know, the end game of this and the last campaign is Crimea. Uh, but you've got to do a lot of things before that becomes possible, including taking back Kherson and Zafarizia or Blasts to even be in a position to uh, place the Russians at risk, make them think you're going to invade at military, or indeed go ahead with some kind of military invasion of Crimea.
1: You know, you wrote a uh, you wrote a fantastic book called War Transformed that um, that sort of traces the outline of um, modern war, really, in the in the kind of influential forces, technology, demographics, etc., cetera, uh, that shape it. The book was published uh, nine days before Russia's invasion last February. Are there conclusions that that you reached in the course of writing the book that um, that this war has reinforced and? you know, maybe on the flip side, has has the conduct of the war challenged maybe any of your assumptions or or your expectations?
0: Um, I I don't think it has. I mean, War Transformed is about war as a phenomenon. And then some of the trends we're seeing, and the trends I wrote about in there, all of them have been uh, in evidence uh, in Ukraine. I think what I would take from a reading of the book and then the war is that there are very few new elements of this war. I mean, every war is an aggregation of the ideas, the organisations, uh, the styles of fighting that have gone between it. It's there's, If you have a look at every war, you kind of uh, lift, you know, open the cover and there's this strata of every war that's gone before it um, with lessons, some well-learned, some not so well-learned. And this war is no different. Um, pretty much everything we've seen in it, we've seen in every Previous war, whether it's the presence of strategy, the importance of leadership, artillery, combined arms, air operations, um, you know, support from the population, influence none of these things are new. I mean, I think um, the continuities in war, and I talk about this a lot, is continuity is about eighty to ninety percent of war. And if you only understand or seek to find those things that are changing, you're actually going to miss the centre of gravity of war, which is, you know, the will to fight, you know, the will to produce, uh, the will to lead and to sacrifice oneself. Now, uh, just because 80 to 90% of a war is continuity doesn't mean there aren't some new things in this war. I think there's two, for me, that are very important that stand out. Obviously, uh, the growing importance of autonomous systems and counter-autonomy systems. I think... Uh, the emphasis on them in this war is different to previous war. I mean, we've you know, clearly we've used um, remote control systems since the Second World War. I mean, the Germans used them on the beaches at Anzio. So um, they're not new, but how they're being used, how they're being better integrated with operations is changing. And, you know, the use of these systems now means, for example, the detection to destruction time is less than a minute. You know, when I was a brigade commander, it was 10 minutes. That has significant implications for tactics. It has massive implications for force structure. And we need to ask ourselves, you know, uh, is things like towed artillery viable anymore? Um, Are crude attack helicopters viable anymore? Is logistics that's not on wheels and command and control that's not on wheels or track viable anymore? So I think that's one thing that's newish. But the other new thing I think is really interesting and exciting because there's a lot of opportunity is this meshing of civil and military intelligence. Um, it's not just use of OSIN, There's a real meshing that's taken place in all the aspects of the intelligence cycle, whether it's collection, whether it's uh, analysis, which is happening in civil and military and individual you know, bedrooms and, and, and land rooms, and, and dissemination. It's all happening. That whole cycle is happening both civil, military and government networks. And there's a closer networking of all that, particularly with the Ukrainians. Um, and I think moving forward, military institutions are going to have to think differently about not just OSINT, but all the elements of the intelligence cycle and um, you know assurance and assessment of information, but targeting quality information, battle damage assessment, um, strategic assessments, none of which anymore can rely just on military and government intelligence institution. I mean, I think it's fascinating what's happened. There's been a couple of good articles on it, but I think there's a long way to go in how we analyze what's happened here.
1: You know, as uh, Klaus obviously said, the difference between, uh, you know, war on paper and real war is is friction. What have been some of the, you know, points of friction that have been most, Uh, prominently on display during the conduct of this war so far?
0: I think uh, like all wars, there's lots of them. There's clearly the the friction that occurs in the battle space. Um, I mean, I think that's an obvious one. There's been the friction when it comes to logistics. Um, But, you know, I think if you go to the other level, I think alliance friction has been a really interesting part of this war. I mean, Putin did not expect the West to respond as quickly or decisively as it has. Now, some of us would like it to have responded even more decisively or and more quickly, but um, for Russia, part of the friction has been this has reinvigorated NATO. Uh, you know, it wasn't too long ago, the French president was calling it a brain dead organization. Now, I think that was probably a little unfair, but not too much. You know, bureaucracies do atrophy over time. And, and if you don't use your muscles and brain cells, they do kind of uh, ossify. Um, this has reinvigorated NATO. It's given it new purpose. It's given it a purpose it has not had for 30 years. Afghanistan wasn't purpose. It was just a job to keep it busy while it came up with a new purpose in many respects. Um, so for the Russians, the NATO and you know broader network of nations that are helping Ukraine, quite rightly, um, has been a great source of friction for them. Um, but I also think for the West in its support, uh, the lack of support by some other nations, or the kind of neutral status of Countries like China and India and many in South Asia and Africa who don't want to take a position has caused a lot of friction in the international system. Um, And to that end, you know, one of the biggest underperformers or the greatest underperformer in this war hasn't been the Russian army. It's been the United Nations. Um, I mean, what's the United Nations for anymore? You know, what does it do besides provide employment opportunities for former national leaders of countries from across the world? I mean, I... I think that's a point of great friction in the international environment at the moment is multilateral institutions have failed in preventing this war um, and many of them have failed in garnering support for the defence of a, a young democracy that is at the threat of extermination from a pretty vicious authoritarian power.
1: You know, there are certain sort of aspects of military operations that, um, and again, I say this from a a very particular perspective, but the U.S. military perspective has been shaped over the past 20 years largely by um, its participation in conflicts that were defined by particular features. One of them was unchallenged uh, air supremacy. Another one of them was... um, you know, essentially largely secure and reliable lines of communication for logistics resupply and things like that. We're seeing now, you know, evidence of how difficult it can be to prosecute a war when when those things can't be taken for granted. We published an article um, by... Uh, our former director Liam Collins, Collins in 2017, I believe, almost six years ago now, that talked about the importance of being able to get back to things like camouflage and understanding the importance of cover and concealment and jumping talk. You know, when I when I was in Baghdad in 2008, the division headquarters I was assigned to a brigade. Our division headquarters in Baghdad, multinational division Baghdad, was at uh, the Victory Base Complex, which was this massive yep. sprawling yep. base. That- I remember it well. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'm sure you do. They that we had controlled since two thousand three, since the invasion when we initially secured it and it had grown up and up and up. And multinational division Baghdad, five years after the invasion, had, you know, hundreds of staff members it was this massive sort of thing. And I remember the first time I heard, um heard the phrase jumping talk, uh, because MNDB, they had a talk. It was this massive building. Our brigade had a talk. It was, you know, static and it was, it was the same place there the day that I arrived. And a year later when I, when I left the country, it was in the same place. And suddenly now you have to get back to being able to do things like take a brigade headquarters and move it almost on a moment's notice because it's, it's, you know, it can be targeted by artillery and you have to protect your, um, electromagnetic, um, uh, signals and and things like this to make yourself less targetable. How much do you think um, this war has re- has really made clear the importance of that? And how well are Western militaries, the Australian Army that you know that 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 you served in for for more than three decades, the U.S. Army? How well are we learning these lessons?
0: Well, we all have that doctrine. That's the good thing. At least there's an intellectual foundation for that. Um, and I remember in my first week as a brigade commander, I said, well, let's get out the brigade uh, command post and let's practice stepping up, you know, which what you call is doing the jump. But, you know, a brigade headquarters has a main, has a forward and attack. Um, and your main doesn't move as much, but certainly your forward and attack move constantly, which because of, you know, you want to ensure you're managing your signatures. Um, and,. There was a lot of people that hadn't done that before, that hadn't stepped up the command post, and you know it's a pretty basic drill. In particular, you're doing recons for your commu- recons for your communications and and all those kind of things. Um, the doctrine's there, but we don't practice it enough because it's hard, and a lot mm-hmm. of people who haven't done it um, are a little uncomfortable with being uh, looking silly if they don't get it right the first time. We we need to allow a bit of failure in these kind of things, but you know things like deception. Uh, things like camouflage and concealment in all its uh, manifestations, not just, you know, face cream, but, you know, being able to understand what is the signature of a uh, combined arms battle group? What are all the signatures? You know, everything from noise to exhaust emissions to thermal to electromagnetic, I mean, and just how it actually organises. There's a bunch of signatures, and I know we spend a lot of time measuring them as a brigade and trying to pull them apart um, this is an art. It's something we probably haven't done enough of in the last couple of decades because we haven't had to, but it gets down to this detection to destruction time. We knew if you were discovered, you had less than 10 minutes to live. Now that is, you know, one to five minutes, depending on, you know, if you're a headquarters, probably one minute. If you're an artillery battery, probably two or three minutes, which means, you know, you um, towed artillery just may not have a place uh, in too many situations in the future. Um, And so what does that mean for our tactics, for discoverability, but also mobility and survivability? So, you know, these are the kind of things that we need to look at pretty seriously. They're not sexy. Uh, They're not, you know, just by Javelin version two. There's a whole range of force design, training, tactics, and uh, conceptual issues that we're going to have to think through in detail um, to really resolve them for the next fight, because there's always a next fight, um, and you want to make sure you're prepared for it.
1: I think that's one of the most striking things about watching this war over the past year is how lots of things that are not sexy have become sexy. Um, I don't know if you if you remember in the first month or two of the war, the uh, US DOD sort of civil servant tire expert who broke down imagery of tires and their tire construction that on russian vehicles and why they are having so (laughs) many i mean you know these are the sorts of things you know tires stuff that's not that's not sexy we don't normally think of that or logistics you know this is again this is sort of something that because we sort of took for granted that logistics was not going to be contested that we weren't going to be able to run or we weren't going to be running into problems just getting what we needed from point a to point b when i was in afghanistan i was on a it just happens
0: right logistics just happens (laughs)
1: <laughs> exactly. What I, I mean, I was in, when I was in Afghanistan, I was part of a small team of six, um, all Americans, but we lived in and worked in a British uh, AO uh, area of operations. And we were able to get, I mean, we had a Connex full of protein shakes and potato chips and and Gatorade and everything we ever could have wanted at that point, we just sort of took it for granted, like you said. And so I think that that's really important that they, these, all these unsexy things are, they're becoming, we're recognizing how important they are. You know, if you're, if you're somebody and who's an expert in logistics, you know, now is your time to be really, to sort of have your voice, um, have your voice be heard. And I think that that's really important because it's one thing to talk about these things in kind of a theoretical and abstract level. It's another thing to have an ongoing conflict to be able to point to and say, look, here's the cost of of getting some of these things wrong. Mm.
0: No, I think it's a really good point. I mean, if I think the genesis of a lot of these things is, you know, once again, the end of the Cold War. Um, you know, we didn't want to have big militaries anymore. We didn't want to have big industrial bases. We wanted to reap the peace dividend. Um, and, you know, uh, this was about prosperity and stuff for our people. And I think that is entirely reasonable. But I think it also led to military institutions, including my own and the US ones, um, taking up some really junk ideas from business. I mean, really junk ideas, uh, just-in-time mm. logistics. That is a junk idea for a military institution. There's no such thing, you know. If you don't have it when the fight starts, there's no getting it once the fight starts until it's probably too late. So that was a junk idea. I think um, some of the management... Uh, ideas that we've brought in from civil industry and this profusion of MBAs, I also think is a junk idea for military institutions. We actually don't need uh, a lot of that. We need just enough of it, but we need good leadership to start. Um, And, you know, it always worries me when military institutions look outside for leadership exemplars, uh, many of whom are flawed um, based on founder theory and all this garbage that just doesn't work in a military institution. So I think, you know, we've got to look back at ourselves for what works, what we know works from our history. And that's where most of the best ideas are from, because most of the things we try and steal from industry, uh, the ideas we steal from industry, either uh, lack contextual understanding. Uh, You know, Howard talked about study military history in breadth, depth and context. But also a lot of the management ideas that come from civil industry came from the US Army at the end of the Second World War, right? So you know I think uh, things like misunderstanding logistics, misunderstanding the importance of good leadership, uh, misunderstanding you know uh, better integration of military organizations or industrial production, a lot of the times we've been seduced by junk ideas from business, and I think we need to cast a more skeptical eye on some of the ideas we bring into our institutions at time because I think they're less than helpful. I think they're dangerous at times.
1: Well, to sort of wrap up, I, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot and 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 ask you to make you know too many specific sort of forecasts or predictions for for what is in store in the war. But it does strike me that maybe a good way to book into the conversation is to return to something that you said right at the outset, which was, you know, one of your initial sort of um, conclusions that you reached, one of the initial insights that you had when you were watching the opening stages of this war is that, you know, long war is back. Um What does that mean? How long is long where, you know, obviously there's there's a point of exhaustion that either side could face. But, you know, is it your expectation that we could be having a similar conversation to this a year from now or five years from now?
0: I think that's entirely possible. These are two big countries uh, with large resource spaces, in particular with humans. Um, And we should remember, how long did Afghanistan go for? 20 years. Mm. And that was with boots on the ground. Um, So, you know, the West has huge resources that it can potentially throw at this fight. It hasn't done that yet. I mean, support it's already provided, as good as it is, is a a very, very tiny part of GDPs or even defence budgets. So, you know, um, the West can support Ukraine for a very, very long time to come if it wants to. It's It's not a matter of money. It's a matter of will. And at the end of the day, this will come down to, just as Clausewitz tells us, a battle of wills, and whose will will eventually win out.
1: Well, I think we will leave it there. I want to thank you again for, um, for taking some time to talk, uh, to talk through some of this stuff for, again, for listeners, um, you know, that, that aren't familiar with your work, if there are any of them out there, um, if they, you know, I highly recommend they find you on Twitter. Um, they, they read the things that you're writing, uh, very prolifically. Uh, I can't recommend War Transformed, your, your book that came out a year ago, uh, Uh, highly enough. You've also got another book uh, that, you know, maybe this is for another podcast at some point, but you've got another book that comes out in just a couple months. I told you just before we were were recording that it's only the second book ever that I have pre-ordered because that's not something I normally do, but I'm very much looking forward to it. It's a novel that sort of explores a future conflict uh, between the United States and China over Taiwan. Um, So, you know, I just want to thank you again for not only making the time, but for, uh, you know, putting all the work into kind of helping people understand uh you know this war and the broader phenomenon of, of modern war so thank you
0: yeah no worries mate it's uh, great to talk to you it's always wonderful to uh, be associated with the modern war institute it's an, an organization that i have a deep respect and affection for and uh really appreciate the time to chat today
1: Thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again.